Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we have a, a family member fly in to, to visit us, and uh, she has a company that creates bath and beauty products. And, and other self-care stuff. One of the items that she created, bath bombs, and they've got like little bottles inside there what are they called message in a bottle bombs right self-affirming messages on inside the bath bombs but apparently that doesn't show up great on tsa x-rays no (laughs) and then trying to describe a product that has the word bottle and bomb in it uh to tsa it doesn't work out well at least they weren't message in a bottle pipe bombs (laughs) that's that's true so anyway she she's here visiting and we go to disney and uh cat was good-naturedly ribbing her about that uh, until we got to security at Disney. And guess what? No. Cat had her taser on her. <laughs> Again? It's, um, see, I wasn't planning on bringing this particular bag with me. And then at the last minute, I changed my mind. And I didn't realize <laughs> that I had already had a, a taser in it. Am I the only one who doesn't take weaponry everywhere? <laughs> <laughs> I'm beginning to think that that's the case. Mm, but I am glad that she brought those um, bombs because it smells great in here. It really does. It smells <laughs> wonderful. In the 1800s, surgeons had to battle with time, especially when it came to amputations. You know, a couple of different reasons. Speed made a difference, not only in the amount of pain that a patient felt, but also in the survival rate. At the time, anybody that was undergoing an amputation had a one in four chance of dying. Oof, those are not good odds. (laughs) No, 25% of the people operated on died. Uh, Now, remember, this was a time before anesthesia, uh, so the patient would be awake during the process, and they would experience horrible levels of pain. I'm sure. So the doctors tried to get this stuff done as quickly as possible. Sure, just zip right through that amputation. Yeah, uh, because... (laughs) Delicate surgery. (laughs) Yeah, and also because, you know, the patients would often be panicky and writhing about on the table. Do you say writhing or wreathing? 
Writhing? Who says wreathing? I've heard it both ways. Um, this was not particularly helpful for a surgeon who's trying to cut you open with a scalpel or remove a limb with a bone saw. Right. That's why they had to have so many people helping, mostly yes. just to hold people down. Yeah. In fact, there are stories of patients that panicked so much. Uh, this was an article I found in The Atlantic that they managed to wrestle themselves free from those people and fled the operating room. Presumably before they lost their leg. Otherwise, uh, well, they'd be pretty easy be to catch going. with all the hopping and the bleeding. Yeah. Um, this was also a time where very little was understood about germs yeah. and antiseptics. There was a very high rate of infection. Gangrene would set in pretty often. Right. Oftentimes, surgeons would perform several amputations in a row just uh, using the same bone saws and knives. Right. Just wipe it off on your apron. That's what they did. Then there was the possibility that if the surgeon took too long during an operation, the patient could bleed out. Right. What they did understand was that the faster a surgeon could slice, saw, and suture, the higher rate of their survival. Slice, saw, and suture? Is that like the 19th century version of shit, shower, and shave? <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't long before surgeons who performed amputations and operations, the fastest, were known as the surgeons that were the best. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And using that criteria, the best of the best was a guy named Robert Liston. Robert Liston lived in London in the early to mid-1800s. He was about six foot two. He always operated with a bottle green coat and Wellington boots, so he had style. Apparently. He was dubbed the fastest knife in the West End. Well, if he was tall, then I'm guessing he had long arms, too, which means for long like pulls on the saw. So, I was going to say sword and saw at the same time. You came out with and it came out with saw. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so the long limbs equal long, what are they called? Goes of the saw? Strokes. Saw goes. Saw goes. You can't say strokes. That sounds dirty. It wasn't uncommon for this guy to carry out a leg amputation from beginning to end in under three minutes. Whoa. Dr. Liston, he started off in Edinburgh at the Royal Infirmary as a surgeon, but people hated this guy. He wasn't very popular among his colleagues in Scotland because he was, well, number one, pretty abrasive, mm -hmm. but number two, incredibly arrogant. It sounds like house. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> There's actually kind of an interesting comparison between the two. Because of the friction between himself and other doctors at the infirmary, he left to become a professor of clinical surgery at the University College Hospital in London. And this would have been about uh, 1835. And this is where his notoriety grew to the point of celebrity status oh. for the day. This guy was the shit. Now, Liston worked with a guy named Dr. Richard Gordon, who was also a surgeon at the University College Hospital, but... He also was a medical historian, and so he documented a lot of the work that Liston did, and that's why we know so much about this guy. Okay. He had a medical historian with firsthand knowledge watching him on a daily basis. Gordon was the guy who dubbed him the fastest knife in the West End. Now, as I was saying, Liston was known to be able to complete an amputation from cutting to suturing in under three minutes. He was a great believer in speedy surgery. In Gordon's book, Practical Surgery, which he published in 1837, he said, quote, these operations must be set about with determination and complete rapidity. 
Plus, I mean, if you saw fast enough, there the friction should cause heat, which would <laughs> at the same time cauterize the wound. So, <laughs> yeah, it's right? a possibility, I guess. Right? Kind of like your uh, your blender, the Vitamix, the Vitamix. Yeah, you can actually make hot soup in it. Because yeah, it, <laughs> it blends so fast. <laughs> if you just leave it in there long enough, it's hot. By the time that Gordon had written this book, he had witnessed Liston remove a leg from beginning to end in as little as two and a half minutes. Wow. We look back at this approach to surgery as being pretty barbaric, and by our standards, it certainly was, but it was actually pretty effective, a pretty effective way to uh, to do it at the time. Now, I'm sorry, I, maybe I wasn't paying attention. John Gordon, was he, he was just a like a partner, like a buddy, they just he was surgered together. Yeah, he was a colleague at uh, the university hospital. Okay, if they worked on a leg at the same time, would they use like one of those two-handed band saws? <laughs> I don't know if that was ever done, but it could have been. It, it makes sense because they would have been able to perform the surgery more quickly. Right. Liston's rate was far better. One in ten of his patients died. Only ten percent. Wow. Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a Boston polymath, once told an audience, quote, surgeons operated in blood-stiffened frocks at this time. The stiffer the coat, the prouder the busy surgeon. Ew. Yeah. Again, this was before they understood. And germs. Right. Uh, in my experience, it's never good to find a coworker with stiff pieces of clothing in their office. <laughs> We're talking about different bodily fluids, probably. Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, I do. It wasn't me. No. <laughs> so because of his success rate, Dr. Liston was highly sought after. And of course, this continued to feed his ego and arrogance. Now, remember, at the time, most of these procedures were done in an operating theater where people could actually come in and watch. And it wasn't like you had to have special credentials. You just bought a ticket and went. I love that. I wish they did that more. Me too. Liston was not just a surgeon, but he was also a bit of a showman. Uh, if a patient was deemed by any other fellow surgeons as beyond medical help, Liston would take the case. So he was popular with the patients, but despised by the doctors because he was constantly showing them up. Got it. It was not unusual for Dr. Liston to sweep into the operating theater and call out to the onlookers, quote, time me, gentlemen. Oh, jeez. His goal from operation to operation was to beat his personal best time. It's kind of like I do on repetitive long car trips, but with lots more blood. Lots more blood? Yeah, than my trips. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought you were saying your trips caused more blood. And I was like, well, I have seen you drive. Shh, shh. We don't talk about and that, remember? Again, from Gordon's book, he described Liston's procedure, quote, to free both hands, he would clasp the bloody knife between his teeth. Oh, I don't even like it when a server touches the top of my glass with their hands. <laughs> <laughs> like down toward the base, yeah. sir or ma'am or whatever. And although most of his surgical procedures involved amputation of a limb, one of his most famous cases was when he removed a 45-pound tumor from a guy's scrotum in oh. four minutes. That's, that's a lot of speed for scrotum. And that's a lot of scrotum. Uh, according to Gordon, the tumor was so large that in order to get the patient into the operating theater, they had to put his scrotum in a wheelbarrow and transport him that way. Whoa. Yeah, that's a big scrotum tumor. 
and it only took less than four minutes to get rid of it. Was did the guy still have scrotum? I mean, because when you're moving that fast, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. Even though he was despised by his fellow surgeons for his ego and showmanship, they still grudgingly respected the guy. Liston actually invented some surgical items that are still being used today. Oh. There's an item called a, a Liston splint, which is still being used. Also, he invented the bulldog locking forceps. In addition, he was the first surgeon in Europe to perform a public surgical procedure using anesthetics. Wow. Okay. Now we're getting somewhere. Right. At the time, ether was being used in the U.S. on an experimental basis for dental extractions. And he heard about this. So on December 21st, 1846, he announced to his crowd, quote, Gentlemen, today we are going to try a Yankee Dodge. That almost sounds like he's insulting the <laughs> method. A Yankee Dodge sounds like some kind of a like euphemism for a sex act, doesn't it? <laughs> today we're going to try... A rusty trombone, gentlemen. Oh, this guy I met on Tinder mm. wanted to do the old Yankee Dodge. <laughs> the patient's name, who was the recipient of the Yankee Dodge, was Frederick Churchill. He was in need of his right knee being amputated. Just the knee? <laughs> no, I think probably everything below. I uh, didn't say specifically, but I doubt very much they just cut his knee out and then stuck it back together again. I don't think they were quite that advanced yet. It's no good, the knee. Got to get rid of it. He was administered ether and lost consciousness. Liston removed the limb at an incredibly fast rate of 25 seconds. Wow. It was so fast, in fact, that um, even though the ether wore off pretty quickly and Churchill regained consciousness, it was already done. And he asked Liston uh, when they were going to start the operation. Whoa. Everybody in the theater just erupted with laughter. And so the patient thought they were laughing at him. And he was so upset that he shouted, take me back. I can't have it done. One of the witnesses to the surgical procedure was a guy named James Simpson. He was so inspired that he went on to experiment with various compounds as anesthetics and eventually discovered chloroform. Another notable student at the event was John Lister. Oh, of, of Listerine. Yes, he was a pioneer of antiseptic techniques. And the flavor remains the same. But with all of these accomplishments and groundbreaking surgical uh, techniques, Dr. Liston is known to make a blunder or two. In one leg amputation, he was so focused and carried away and so sloppy uh, that he not only removed the patient's leg, but his testicles as well. How does that happen? I can't even imagine. Were those some low-hanging testicles? It must have been some, or... I think maybe a combination of low-hanging testicles and uh, he had to get up higher on the thigh for whatever reason. Wow. I mean, that's not just like... Whoops, I was cutting wrapping paper and I accidentally <laughs> got the tablecloth as well. No. That's, I mean, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. But the good thing is um, he beat his personal time. So he was happy. You know, he was able to do that. Another incident, he found a lump on a boy's neck and thought it was a skin tag. And it was just kind of like, it wasn't even like the main surgery the boy was having, but he saw the skin tag and he said, well, I'll just take that as well. But he learned it was actually an aneurysm in the carotid artery. And uh, so the boy bled to death. On oh the table. my goodness. Yeah. But there is one incident that Liston is remembered for above all others. The date is unknown, but Liston was scheduled to remove a limb as per usual. It was said that he was again going after a personal best record. Oh, geez. He removed the limb in about a half a minute. 
Because he was moving so fast, he accidentally amputated the fingers of his assistant surgeon who was holding the leg down. The patient, although surviving the operation, died of infection later. Sepsis had set in. Because he had someone else's discorporated fingers in his open wound? It could be. It could be a lot of things. Shortly after the patient died, so did the assistant surgeon. Oh, jeez. Sepsis set in as well with him, and so he died. And if that's not enough, because Liston was moving so quickly and frantically, he accidentally slashed through the uh, coattails of one of the witnesses. How close were these people standing? Um, A lot of them came right down by the table. You had to be personally invited. It was like, you know, in the mosh pit or front row VIP seating. Even though the man was not harmed, he freaked out, fearing that he had been slashed through a vital organ. And so it appeared as though he just fainted to the floor. But it actually turned out the guy died of shock. No. So he killed three people in this operation, leaving Dr. Liston the only surgeon known to have a 300% mortality rate. The story of James Liston. My information came from Vintage News, The Atlantic, Dr. Richard Gordon's book, Practical Surgery. Oh, Richard Gordon. I'm sorry. I kept calling him John Gordon. That's my bad. My bad, Richard. And now, that thing in the middle. There once was a parrot named Nigel. Nigel vanished from his owner's house in Britain in 2010. After a few weeks, Nigel was presumed dead. But four years later, he just showed up and flew back in his owner's window. Nobody knows where he went, but he came back speaking only Spanish and talking about some guy named Larry. If this podcast smells funny to you or shows small cracks around the edges, throw it out immediately, spit thrice, and soak your hands in iodine. It may be past its freshness date. This is The Box of Oddities. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. 
Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Support for The Box of Oddities is provided in part by listeners like you on Patreon. You can support us too. Go to patreon.com slash box of oddities. Thank you. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. We got a message from Lauren on Instagram, driving two hours to the small Australian country town Aberdeen, New South Wales, to work for the weekend, listening to The Box, and episode 60 comes on. It's about Catherine Knight. You remember her? She's the one who skinned her partner. Oh, yes. Yeah. And where did she do that? Aberdeen, New South Wales. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So you're just, you're driving to this small, um, isolated countryside <laughs> town, and then you get to hear this horrific story on your way there. You're welcome, Lauren. <laughs> Our work here is done. <laughs> We're reaching out across international borders. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I meant to um, to ask you something, and I forgot. What you got for me? Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, kids. So we're going to turn down the lights and we're going to put on our imagination caps. Mine's at the dry cleaners. Sometimes my imagination gets messy. Well, if that's the case, we're never going to see it again because you have a habit of not picking things up from the dry cleaners. <laughs> 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 yeah, I try to better my personal best on how long I can leave clothing at the dry cleaners. <laughs> it's really just a storage area for yeah, you. It really is. It's the turn of the century, and we are visiting the northwest coast of the French island of Martinique. 
The city of St. Pierre at the time was known as the Paris of the Caribbean. It was a center of trade, a cultural mecca of the region. It hosted a bustling harbor where the city ships exported sugar and rum. And the backdrop of this beautiful city was Mount Pele. We've been there, haven't we? Nope. Oh, we've been to St. Martin. That's different. Yep. I knew it was one of those M places. Mount Pele had sat mostly quiet for a half century. It soared nearly 4,600 feet above the sea. Now, St. Pierre had experienced a number of strange things in 1902. Waves of ants and spiders and centipedes swarmed down the mountain and overran the farm fields at its base. And then the city started noticing hundreds of snakes invading the city. They seem to be leaving the mountain. See, these are like biblical plague type warnings. Uh, something bad's about to happen. It's amazing that animals can sense these things. Animals know what's up. In April, a string of small tremors rattled the city and clouds of sulfurous fumes came down from the mountain. But that was pretty much it. All right. The mountain was saying, hello, we're all moving on with our lives. There was a major election scheduled for May 11, which is just a few days away. The Socialist Party of Martinique was poised to seize power from the conservatives. On May 2nd, Mount Pele let off some steam. There was a small eruption that caught the attention of the people of St. Pierre, who saw glowing rocks and embers uh, shooting out from the summit of the volcano. And when dawn broke, there were hundreds of dead birds littering the oh, ground, wow. covered in heavy ash. Oh, my God. Over the following days, the mountain continued to fume, driving terrified people from the countryside into the city of St. Pierre, which the newspapers reported was safe. Now, St. Pierre had a large number of conservative voters, and the government wanted those conservative votes. So, leaders thought, Mount Pele surely didn't pose enough of a threat to postpone the election. So no evacuation orders were issued. But some other weird stuff is happening as well. The Riviere Blanche on Pele's southwest flank, which emptied into the sea just north of town, had been fluctuating wildly. Sometimes the river would flow over its banks. Other times it seemed to disappear completely. Oh, wow. Which, of course, some people were concerned about. <laughs> but again, the government kept saying, no, no, don't worry about it. We've got an election coming up and you're all going to be here to vote. On May 5, when a mud flow swept down a river on the southwest flank of the volcano, it destroyed a sugar mill. There was a massive flow that buried about 150 people. Oh, my God. And it actually set off a series of three tsunamis as it hit the sea. There was so much flow that as soon as it hit the ocean, it just... Technical term. There yeah, was... Sure. Then on May 6, blue flames announced the arrival of magma. Is that a sign? I had never heard that. Blue flames means... I mean, I, I know farts it, will shoot out <laughs> blue flames. I mean, I'm told. But I didn't hear anything about... Maybe it's sulfur. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Well, it smells the same. So a lava dome is poking above the rim. And finally, the 
phreatic explosions, which are just like the steam and water explosions that had been happening, gave way to magmatic explosions as magma was reaching the surface. On May 7th, the mountain sputtered and a volcano on a neighboring island exploded, killing 1,500 people. Oh, my God. And we're not even getting to the big part, are we? Mm -mm. The authorities insisted there was nothing to fear. Oh, my God. They still wanted the election to go on. In fact, some people came from outside of the city to view the action. You know, you don't get to see a volcano doing its volcano thing all the time. So why not head into town and see it up close and personal? Makes sense. The ash from the volcano was beginning to block roads, but still people stayed. On the morning of May 8, a huge explosion followed by a cloud of lava particles flying through the air, propelled by searing gases, moving at hurricane speeds, came down the side of the volcano. Temperature estimates suggest the gas cloud was between 660 and 750 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. It's about 350 to 400 degrees Celsius. I just saw an article about a discovery they made in Pompeii yeah. where the skeleton's brain had been turned to uh, glass. Yeah. That's crazy hot. I don't understand that. Me neither. And the speed of this fire cloud is estimated at 100 meters per second or 328 feet per second. Mm. There's no outrunning that. Almost immediately, the hot ash ignited a firestorm fueled by buildings and the city's countless casks of rum. And I imagine most of the voters. One witness, Victor Albert, watched the explosion and described the ensuing events to a French newspaper. A flash more dazzling than a lightning happened. At the same time, a cloud that formed on the summit literally fell on St. Pierre with such rapidity that it was impossible for anyone to escape. Almost everyone within the city proper, about 28,000 people died, burned or suffocated or buried by falling masonry. There were 15 ships in the harbor that were capsized by the eruption. One ship managed to stay afloat, with about half the crew surviving, although most of them had serious burns. This is a nightmare scenario. It really is. Now, there are mixed reports about survivors on land. How could there have been any? Well, some report that there was a handful of survivors. According to Volcano Watch, two people made it through. And then there are those that say one person survived on land. Was it one of the candidates? Because he'd win by default. Ludger Silbarius was found four days after the eruption by a rescue team who heard his cries. Oh, man. Ludger, some call him Louis Auguste, and I don't know why it's reported that that is, was not his name. So <laughs> why? I don't, I don't know. But he had been arrested for getting in a fight, either a bar fight or a street brawl. It's unclear. On May 7th. And police have put him into solitary confinement in a half underground tiny cell with no windows and only a very narrow slit in the door facing out to sea. According to his account, at about breakfast time on the day of the eruption, it grew very dark. Hot air mixed with fine ashes entered his cell through the vent and it got incredibly hot. Ludger removed his shirt urinated on it and stuffed it into the vent to stop the flow of ash, but it didn't stop the heat. 
that's pretty smart thing to it's do. It's really smart. That's some good thinking under pressure. Way to go, Ludger. I wonder if any of the clothing in his office was stiff. The heat from the eruption caused deep burns on Ludger's hands, arms, legs, and back. But his prison was the most sheltered building in the city, and this saved his life. Did they let him go with time served when they <laughs> dug him out? Because that's enough. Ludger was pardoned for his crimes. Oh, I'll bet he was. And he was actually hired to tour with Barnum and Bailey to tell the story of the horrific events and his survival. He became somewhat of a celebrity and was known as the man who lived through doomsday and toured with the circus for some time, apparently doing pretty well. No more urine-soaked shirts for him. That's right. The cell in which he survived still stands today. No shit. Yeah. Wow. And you can see photos of that as well on Atlas Obscura, which was one of my sources, as well as History.com, Earth Magazine, Wikipedia, of course, and History Daily. So did they, they must have rebuilt the city. It does remain, but it never recovered. What is the uh, What was the total body count on both islands that, that suffered volcanic Ooh, eruption? unclear, unclear. I know that um, in the city itself, it was about 28,000 people. Jesus. That nearby island, they lost about 1,500. The day before... Four or the or two days before there had been that sugar mill that was mm -hmm. destroyed that mm -hmm. killed about fifteen hundred people. So thirty one, thirty two thousand. Several days after the major explosion, there was a following mm. eruption that killed a lot of the first responders oh, and geez. rescuers. Oh my! God. Uh, maybe about two thousand. So I mean, it it was a continuous event. A lot of people at first survived, but eventually would have succumbed to their uh, incredible injuries mm. because the 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 heat was just overwhelming. And so I think that it's probably impossible to know the number. It's big though. I hadn't heard this account before. I've researched a lot of the uh, history of Pompeii. Right. There were many accounts of people, especially they would try to escape to the sea and they hid in boathouses. Right. And you would find a lot of um, bodies, either skeletal remains or people that had been encased in lava and then decomposed and they poured plaster in it mm. and made molds of these people in their final moments of time. It's terrifying. You see, yes, it is. And you see people holding each other and with their arms around each other. And it's uh, it's a remarkable snapshot into a horrific day yeah. that was pretty well documented by Pliny the Elder. That's why we know as much about it as we do. Yeah. Pliny's wife was pissed because he was all like, I'm going to go over there. And she's like, um... No, no, that's dumb. And he was like, I'm heading out. Bye. You, you put that boat back. No, he went across the, the harbor. And, you know, mm. just it's. <sighs> mm -hmm. And then he took a bath when he got over there. He did. He went to his uh, friends of his house. Yeah. And he was covered in ash. So, well, while the mountain was erupting, he just took a bath. Well, I probably do the same thing, too. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing is is more relaxing than a nice hot soak during a volcanic eruption. I know just after walking around town, there's nothing that feels better than washing my face. <laughs> so Yeah, when you've got an entire volcano in your face, that makes perfect sense. That's all I have for you. That's really, really interesting. Hey, stop ordering merch for Christmas. <laughs> it's too late. Yeah, you're probably not going to get it's it. It's not going to get to you in time. Uh, but, you know, who are we to say 
Don't order merch. Just don't expect it in time for the holidays. I mean, if you want January gifts, fine. If you want February gifts, awesome. <laughs> but um, you're not, you're not going to be able to give them on the, the traditional Christmas Day kind of uh, gift swap situation because they probably won't get there in time. But really, shouldn't we make every day like Christmas gift swap time? I mean, how much money do you have available to you? Because I don't have that much money. Mm, that's true. <laughs> But I get your point, yes. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. <laughs> and so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.